When people hear these two words, video games, a lot of people think they are a waste of time. But what if I told you that I learned to program computers at the age of nine thanks to video games? I also learned to take apart and troubleshoot my family's home computer because of video games. Even Elon Musk owes his love of video games to his career. Not convinced? You probably heard of the game Animal Crossing, right? The Nintendo Switch title became the game that helped millions to deal with quarantine in the first few months of the pandemic in 2020. Get this, the game sold over 31 million copies since March of 2020. Add that to the $180 billion in revenue that the video game industry made in 2020, according to Marketplace. That amount makes gaming bigger than movies and North American sports combined. Then there's Roblox. If you are a parent, you have probably heard of this game or even spent money on it for your child. Roblox recently listed shares on the New York Stock Exchange and now has a value of around $42 billion, according to Fortune magazine. And now the CEO is a billionaire. And that is all from a video game that attracts 32 million users a day. And get this, there are even kids making money on Roblox, some enough to pay for their own college education. Still, think video games are a waste of time? What about esports? I know some of you don't take the idea of playing video games as a serious sport, but you know who does? Colleges and universities, corporations, brands, and major media outlets do. Esports is global and growing fast. Colleges and universities are offering scholarships. Players are getting sponsors, just like top athletes in the NBA and NFL. Matter of fact, esports is building an entire ecosystem of opportunities, including entrepreneurship, technology, marketing, entertainment, media, sales, and more. But there's a huge downside to this growth and opportunity. People of color, especially black people, are watching from the sidelines and being left behind. According to a Pew Research study, 83% of black teenagers play video games compared to 71% of white teenagers, but only 2% of game developers identify as black, according to an International Game Developers Association survey. And that is where our guest, Ryan Johnson, comes in on this episode of Diverse Disruptors. Ryan is the founder of Community, an organization whose mission is to increase the participation of minorities within the esports and video game industry. Community has even partnered with the United Negro College Fund to increase student participation and build capacity for esports and gaming. The schools that can afford the PCs can have the esports team. None of the black schools in the city, for the, exact, for the same reason, could afford to do that. So I was like, all right, cool. If this is happening in Atlanta. I can promise you it's happening throughout North America. Ryan has also recently partnered with Twitch to create an HBCU esports league. I wanted to learn more about the work Ryan and community are doing in this space. But I also want to know how this aspiring sports physical therapist became such an advocate for more representation in gaming and esports. So you, you, you spent most of your, your developing youth in Columbia, Maryland. What was that like? Did, uh, like what was like growing up in Maryland? Super chill and like Columbia is basically 20 minutes, well, probably 30 minutes in between DC and Baltimore. Mm -hmm. um, so very residential, very, you know, community driven type of ecosystem. It's actually funny. What I learned is that Columbia is one of the few neighborhoods or few cities, I should say, in North America that's actually a planned community. 
And so when I say like a planned community, one that was built with the 70 year plan from its inception um, versus just like a plot of land development and hope to generate some money. Columbia is a really unique place. I grew up my whole life. I'm an only child. Um, so I played traditional sports, basketball at all levels, um, minus like professional. Um, so I did play middle school, high school and college. Um, and also as an only child, if I wasn't like at basketball practice or like skateboarding in the driveway. But after basketball, the skateboarding, Ryan had another obsession. I was always playing video games. And things aren't that much different today either. Ryan's still very much a gamer, always has been. Like it was not even a question. So for me, gaming was always very important, integral in my life, just because as an only child, online gaming provided you like community, provided you access, friends, etc. Um, so as a child, I like literally, man, grew up in Columbia, go to school, play basketball, go skateboard, sunsets, and I'm on my PlayStation or Xbox, whatever the preference is at the time, um, and I'm playing games until the next day. I'm a little older, so I didn't have a play. There was no such thing as Sony, PlayStation, or Xbox. It was just a Nintendo system. But my parents were very like, you're wasting your time. Talk about your relationship with your parents when it came to gaming. And like, what was your what was your relationship with your your, your folks? Your yeah, my mom was more lenient about it just because she knew I was active in like other areas, right? So I was never just like a homebody playing video games all the time. My dad works in education. So he was never really a big fan of like gaming or watching television. It was always like, you need to read, you need to read. And that, of course, caused a lot of like tension or contention, I should say. Ryan says his parents are very proud now, but took a while for them to come around on the whole gaming thing, if you know what I mean. Yeah, growing up, it was always tough. My dad used to try and make me read, like literally, man, about two to three hours, like every single Sunday. It was <laughs> like a thing. And I was never having it. And here is where it becomes clear that Ryan was probably destined to do his own thing, to become an entrepreneur. My whole life, school included, like I was just very intentional about not doing what was like the norm. Minds like his sometimes get bored with school. I heard that from Nash Ahmed, founder of a doc, in our conversation back in episode three. And if you missed that, check it out. But Ryan had some of the same issues with the educational system. He was always asking, what's the point? So if a teacher was like, yo, you need to read this book, I'm directly going to Cliff Notes and just like taking away what I could take away. Were you a good student, like middle school, high school, like as far as grades and... I was like real, real average of a yeah. student, like C, C plus, B minus, like in that range. But again, for me, like and it's, it's kind of funny like looking back at it all because my intention and even how I got those grades again was not lack of effort, but lack of belief that excelling in those things that they told me would make me good. Wouldn't make me as good as they said. Hmm. Right. Like ever since I was a kid, I just had this notion of like, why am I, is, why am I learning this specific thing? Right. Hmm. Is it because it's what's mandated or is it because it's actual, like benefit to my life. So like super funny. And I don't know, like, again, wherever you grew up, if you had this test, but in Maryland, every year we had this thing called ITBS testing, where it was like a week long dedicated to like standardized tests or across like various topics. Right. And apparently if you did well in that, that means you were special. And if you didn't, you had to go some extra learning. Literally me and my, my homegirl last night, were talking about ITBS, just like reminiscing. And like the last section of ITBS is like a three hour test of like, 
basically you have to explain how the, the images and shapes would unfold, right? So if holes were put in this piece of paper, how many different holes would there be when you opened up that paper? I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? Like, I can't understand one area of why. So for me, school has always been interesting in the fact that I've wanted to reinvent, especially how school is delivered to young people of color, because what I know is that the way, at least how school is presented to me, is just, it's not created for our best interests. Hmm. And when did you start realizing that? What age? Was that high school, middle school? When you were like sitting there? Eighth into ninth grade. Eighth grade. And then did you relay this this wisdom to your folks? Yeah, like my parents always try and tell me I try and find justice in the wrong areas. <laughs> and so I always talk about it. I was like, well, like it just, it makes no sense that you have to do this to get that. But it doesn't lead to anything beyond, you know. So, of course, like always have the conversations, but parents being your parents, get it done. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I always, I'll say this as a caveat I always kept good enough grades to stay active on sports teams. So, you did the, the bare minimum to, to, to keep yourself happy and, and, fi- and keep yourself in your passion. Absolutely. And I wouldn't even, yeah, I would, I, I, I think bare minimum has such that negative connotation. <laughs> I would do what I need to do to survive. Ryan learns in high school how to pull the levers, how to keep his grades up, how to keep doing what he loved most, sports and video games. If he worked everything out just right, he could do both and basically keep his parents happy. It's a win-win. So he's getting to the end of high school and beginning to look at colleges. He applies to one that jumps out to him as an ideal fit. It's an HBCU that also works perfectly with his spiritual beliefs. Well, my family, and again, not to get religious for those who may or may not be, but my family growing up is Seventh-day Adventist. If, if, for those who aren't familiar, it's a don- denomination of Christianity. Big difference is that I grew up going to church on Saturday versus Sunday. And so the school I went to actually is an HBCU, but it is the Seventh-day Adventist HBCU in Alabama. Mm. So like as an example, playing basketball, I had Division One offers, offers University of Maryland, like a lot of offers on the table, but because of like religious constraints, the only school that kind of pertained and had the parameters that I could compete was Oakwood. So that's mm-hmm. why I went to Oakwood. So imagine this school that's filled with black people with similar beliefs. So like a lot of my friends on my team, like he had, one of my boys had a scholarship at the University of Louisville, but Mm. we all kind of like end up at this one place. And so even though no one's ever heard of us, like we have very good programs because all this high potential just kind of aggregates in one location. But Oakville was phenomenal, man. I, a lot of my friends from the Maryland area went down. So like, it was never a big like gap to get involved. And of course, basketball is because again, it's a very concentrated school. So if you're on the basketball team, is like you're you're it for lack of better words. If you're on the basketball team and or if you're on the choir, so like I'll just quick bragging points. Oakwood has the number one collegiate choral choir in North America in the world for the last five years. So hmm. we go to the World League concert series every year in Russia, and our school wins it literally every year in a row. So if you play basketball, you're on a choir, you're quote unquote somebody at the school. Looking back at it, you know, you complain a lot in the moment, but if I had it my way, I, like now I would never change a single thing about that experience, man. It was just phenomenal. And on that experience, I'm also a graduate HBCU. I'm a Howard grad. Okay. Um, there's people outside of HBCU who don't really understand HBCUs. There's some people who never heard the term HBCUs <laughs> up until like this year, right? 
How would you describe to somebody your experience and why it was so important and different than going to a PWI, predominantly white institution? How would you explain that experience and why was it so unique and different? Because it's almost like for one time in your life, you don't feel like an a- like alienated, you know, and you are excellent in, 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 in its purest form of definition, right? There aren't these worldly perceptions of African-Americans that if you have dreads, you're a thug, or if you have tattoos, you're past crim- like none of that exists, right? And so I think my biggest takeaway from being there was just seeing the successes of what black America could be. Another quick bragging point about Oakwood is that we're one of the top two institutions in North America for all schools for graduating undergraduates into medical school. Hmm. Like our health professions program is like top notch. And so just to see all my friends that are like literally four years out of four or five years now out of college that are like MDs and surgeons Hmm. and lawyers and attorneys. And I think that's the significance of an HBCU is like breaking that mindset of, oh, well, being black and being successful in America is so hard. I was like, it's not that hard if you are in an ecosystem of thousands of people that are all going on to do amazing things. Hmm. Um, so that, like, that was my takeaway, was just being around success, seeing success, and not having to second guess my own worth based on what other people's perception or non-perception is of me. Metal Zero One, stand by for new mission directive, over. What's our next target? Were you still gaming at college? Playing games, video games? Oh, absolutely. No, are you kidding yeah. me? Six. 25 points and he did an outstanding job of carrying the off. We used to have like Call of Duty tournaments in the dorm, Halo, NBA 2K. And that started in 2011 in the dorm <laughs> when we're all playing each other. And right down the street from Oakwood, about seven minutes is Alabama A&M, right? Mm-hmm. And then 90 minutes up the road is Fisk. And then 90 minutes the other way is Miles College. So I'm like, yo, how dope would it be if locally we had like an HBCU NBA 2K tournament? And so this idea started back then. EA Sports, it's in the game. And uh, the funny story is like when I was at Howard, again, before PlayStation, all those fancy consoles, <laughs> we used to have uh, Madden tournaments on Sega Genesis in our dorm room with the football players and everybody else was like the fifth floor. Everybody like, I was on the fifth floor with the football players. And then like every weekend, it was like we have a, a Sega Genesis Madden tournament. To be honest, I miss those days. Anyway, while at Oakwood, Ryan has his sights set on physical therapy. For him, it was a way to stay connected with the sports world without being a competitive player. But getting into a good school for physical therapy, it's also a competitive process as well. Just like getting on any sports team. Unfortunately for Ryan, he didn't get into the schools he was applying for. So he had to put grad school on pause just for a bit. He started applying for jobs, any job, and ended up getting a gig working for a telecommunications company in sales. So right out of college, you graduate, you're doing this gig. Where's this gig at? Baltimore at the time. Baltimore. So you go back to Maryland. Correct. Doing uh, telco sales. What was that like? The worst. It was like literally suit and tie, feet on the street, middle of the summer, like it's like literally, I remember very vividly, um, there was actually like some record-breaking heat that summer in Baltimore. And I had just got back home from Alabama. My AC went out in my car. And we literally every day had to 
like hit doors for 20 different businesses and try and pitch them, whatever. That's where I, I would easily say I found the drive to like literally wake up every day and like go out and hunt because that was what my job was to do. And if you didn't do it, you would get fired. And mind you, I wanted to keep the job that I just got out of school. So it was tough, man. I learned rejection very quickly. Um, like literally walking into buildings and getting escorted out by security for solicitations and like done it all. Had food spilled on me by food couriers, couriers and like elevators, like on my way to a pitch. It wasn't glamorous, but he said he did get a lot of valuable experience. So I would say it's like a lot of entrepreneurs, they always say that those that start in sales have like this upper hand. And I didn't understood that, understand that until I got in sales and seeing now even four or five years later, how that early development is helping with what we're doing today with community. Ultimately, sales wasn't for him. Actually, that might be a bit polite, he says. Frankly, telco sales was pretty much the worst job ever for him. So he quits. He takes a few other jobs along the way and eventually moves on to work in a consulting firm in business development. While he was there, he had the chance to work right underneath the CEO where he says he got super valuable executive training and mentorship, working one-on-one for approximately about a year. While he was working under the CEO, he was building his own skills and more importantly, his confidence. He stayed in that role up until early 2020, right before the pandemic hit. He could see a restructuring coming and wanted to get out while it was still on his terms. So I was like, screw it, I'm gonna just do it myself. So that's kind of like where that leap of faith to quit. Mind you, I quit corporate America without having a next job lined up. So he leaves the company and the industry to go out on his own. And I very much have always been the type of person even though I don't encourage it, I, my, my parents think I'm crazy, but I would literally jump off the cliff and go to plane as if we are flying down. And that's what we did with community. Literally gambled, for lack of better words, my life. The whole nine has happened, car repossessed, not have like been there, done that. So during this whole time, you it wasn't like all rosy for you. So you, you said you had your car repossessed, you had... Oh yeah, all- I've had every, all the bad entrepreneur stuff has happened. Yeah. I'm having to think about how am I going to pay rent? How am I going to buy food? And But yeah, I've, I've been through all of that. It's It was very, like around this time last year was probably like my lowest moment in my life. Just like not having literally money to go across the street and buy $5 worth of food. Even though you have parents and friends that, but like at what point do you want everyone that thinks that you're doing so well to know that you're not doing well at yeah. all? This is a make or break time for Ryan, and and probably any entrepreneur knows what this is like. When he is asking himself, can I really do this? Do I have what it takes? Coming up after the break, he tells us how he gets past this point in his life, where five bucks for food was hard to come by, to building a partnership with Twitch and his platform community. The immense leap his work took and how COVID guided him toward a deeper problem and a solution. That's next on Diverse Disruptors. Support for Diverse Disruptors comes from your membership and Northwestern Mutual. Northwestern Mutual is making investments and supporting programs that create a diverse and inclusive tech and entrepreneur community locally and nationally. Support for Diverse Disruptors also comes from United Way's Techquity, an initiative of Technology United. Techquity strives to bridge the divide throughout the community for students, students, 
job seekers, and vulnerable populations. Support for Diverse Disruptors comes from your membership and from Carthage College. Carthage is committed to embracing diversity, promoting inclusion, and practicing equity to nurture a true sense of belonging to individuals within the campus community. More about Carthage's diversity and inclusion commitments at carthage.edu. And welcome back to Diverse Disruptors. I'm Tariq Moody. At this point in Ryan's journey to building community, he's essentially at rock bottom, at least from a business perspective. He's short on cash, living off his student loans, and trying to get through grad school. But he could feel the pull towards sports and video games. He still had those core interests and passions. And he was still alarmed by the lack of representation in the field of competitive esports. He saw a business opportunity here, but above all, the opportunity to do some good in this field, to make esports more accessible and inclusive for people that look like him. As he'll later learn, it's a billion-dollar industry filled with jobs. When when exactly did you like start writing this plan down, pitching the idea, and getting it off the ground? Were you still in graduate school? First off, well, I'm technically still in grad school because okay. I drop out because I wanted to do this more than finish school, going back to my okay. school days. But no, so around May or June of 2019 is when I noticed the problem, right? The problem was that Atlanta recognizes esports as a high school sport, but it's a, it's, a, it's a cost, right? The schools that can afford the PCs can have an esports team. None of the black schools in the city, for the exact for yeah. the same reason, could afford to do that. So I was like, all right, cool. If this is happening in Atlanta, I can promise you it was happening throughout North America. So you notice esports, but you noticed you saw a disparity in the opportunities for esports. Absolutely. And so that's when we started writing down the plan. So between last May, let's call it last May, June in August is when the plan started to be formulated and like really start to think about what can we do. And then from August until January of this year is when, so last August to this January to specify is when we, I was working at the agency Revel at the time. And so then it was like, all right, cool. I have this own idea, but at the same time now I'm working in the industry, starting to make some connections with different folks. And last November, I actually went out to Dallas for the Esports Award Show um, and went to the Leadership Summit on Saturday morning. It was about 80 people. I was the only black guy in the room. So then it was like, okay, from my earlier observations of Atlanta, Georgia and kids not being able to play, then to the professional conference of all these leaders and decision makers, I'm the only black guy. And then at the esports competition, there's no black people behind the screens that are playing the games. Mm -hmm. But the data shows that 83% of African-Americans play video yep. games on a weekly basis. So I was like, well, I hear this massive number, but where are the, where literally where are the people? This definitely isn't the first time I've heard this on the podcast. Our first guest, Dorsch, said the same thing when he was working at top companies as a UI and UX architect. How he was the only black person in the room at the top levels. At the end of all of this, it's representation that matters. As we've learned, increasing it is what motivates our guests and what motivates me. So our initial plan was, let's help schools raise money to start esports programs as step one. And then COVID exposed to us step zero, 
which is that majority of these kids don't even have laptops to participate in virtual learning. So when you look at the fact that there's 9 million kids in North America that live in the digital divide, and for the first time in human history, that school is virtual, how do those kids get educated, considering that most of them are black and brown and have no way to tap into school? COVID turned a traditional educational system and everything else in the path in 2020 on its head. It exposed this huge digital divide everywhere, not just in esports, but in all aspects of technology, learning, and access. The problem was so glaring to Ryan that he decides to organize a fundraiser called Tech for COVID to make an impact on that step zero. So that's what the idea of Tech for COVID came from, was that step one was esports, but step zero was getting them devices so that there could be esports, right? So Tech for COVID is kind of what put us on the map in the sense that the first weekend we did Tech for COVID, we did it on Twitch. We partnered with some major corporate brands, Intel, JP Morgan. We partnered with Michael Strahan, Offset, Young Jeezy, Bill Bellamy, DL Hewley. I mean, it was 20 hours of live content in a two-day period, the worst decision ever. And we raised, though, $118,000 in those 20 hours, and we reached about 257,000 people. He knew he was onto something with tech for COVID. And so after I saw the data, I was like, is that what we literally just did? And he knew companies would be interested. And Twitch was like, holy crap. You emailed Twitch. Yeah. They came back like, wow, like, did you actually propose this idea to Twitch as yeah. far as the HPCU? Yeah, just like I told you, man, this is a, not a new idea. We've been talking about it since 2011. Mm-hmm. What I've never had was Twitch or someone of that magnitude to then say, here's how we execute. Here's how we help. Because like a lot of other minority founders, as I'm sure you'll hear in this series and just in general, is that the support is not always there. You know, we literally in our journey for the work and impact that we've done, We've seen newer white-owned companies get $5 million for the stuff that we're getting 50000 And we actually have students, we have results, and they have concepts, right? So it all comes back to a lot of foundational elements on how things mm. are run. But at the same time, man, if were we just like what we can see now versus what we saw two months ago, man, I, I, I feel like we're unstoppable in a sense because we've done everything I've just described with under $20,000. As of Sunday, uh, we just did an activation with Downtown Locker Room and 300 Entertainment. And I walk into the stream and like freaking Soldier Boys on my Twitch channel playing Call of Duty with my HBCU team captains, right? Soldier Boys now raising money for our... And so like stuff like that is, I thought about it, but I didn't think that, wow, like this stuff is like really, really happening right now. And so that's what slowly began to trigger the conversations and how we got Twitch's buy-in to do HBCU esports and partner with us officially to be the media broadcast for that. And so then once our announcement and partnership with Twitch went public, um, what really changed just the complete trajectory of like really my life and the companies um, and like even our team was when CNN and Forbes wrote the article about Twitch creating the first HBCU esports with us. And here's where things really take off. Ryan's nonprofit community teams up with Twitch to launch a targeted effort with HBCUs to reach black students directly and get them involved in esports. Establishing programs at the schools, the partnership with Twitch made a lot of sense. And it felt right for him too. 
Remember back to those Call of Duty tournaments he organized at Oakwood? Well, now with Twitch backing him, he's able to do that on a much larger scale with community. And he's getting national media attention to boot. According to that CNN story, get this, Twitch and community have already partnered with Oakwood University, Ryan's alma mater, North Carolina Central University, Hampton University, Morehouse, Clark Atlanta University, Johnson C. Smith University, and Florida A&M University. And from there, the momentum kept building. I mean, would like very humbly say that I don't think that there's a major corporation in North America that we haven't talked to since July. I mean, now we work with every major entertainment agency in Hollywood, CAA, um, ICM, UTA, because we're now an outlet for their black talent to authentically connect through a program that they have never seen before. I'm just going to say, and this is because of you found passion. You wanted to do make a difference with tech for COVID. It's all because of this charity event. That's kind it, of it, it, that's literally where it all stemmed from. We took that content, we took the screenshots, we we showed the numbers, and people are like, "Well, this looks cool. Keep doing it and, and see what happens." So that weekend for Tech for COVID, we had 257,000 streams, and that was in May. The end of July, we did another stream. We had 277,000 streams. And so then brands were like, okay, this is not only a charity opportunity, there's like some real viewership and eyeballs behind mm-hmm. it as well. So like we really serve as like dual purpose, right? We're nonprofit, but we're also a media and entertainment outlet mm. because of like our product that we present. At this point, you may be asking, especially if gaming isn't your cup of tea. Why is esports such a big deal? Why does it even belong in a college setting? And how can it be educational? And and why are companies getting behind it? That's a very valid question. One I asked Ryan straight up. Why are you using this as a platform for connecting black students, brown students into this industry? Well, I think anything is important when a bulk of your time is spent there right? And importance is in the eye of the beholder. So for us, it's like, okay, well, how do you not reinvent the wheel? Well, you meet people where they are. So most black people, young people play video games. Cool. Step one, let's meet them at the games. But also for all the parents that are tuned in right now, and believe you, my parents were once you at one point in time (laughs) in their lives, is that the video game industry is worth $165 billion a year. Esports, which is a subsection of that, is roughly $1 billion, right? So we don't promote esports. We promote the gaming industry because in the gaming industry, there are over 40 different career paths that exist from game development, game design, cybersecurity, graphic design, marketing, coding, event production, business management and marketing. So what we do is that we teach the multidisciplinary career paths that exists within this industry. Like that's the pipeline that we're following. Building that pipeline is key. If you wanna see more people that look like Ryan and me in esports or just in tech in general. And so what's been really fulfilling in our, in this conversation, like in, when I say we're talking to every major video game publisher, like as an example, Riot Games gave six of our students in the HBCU ecosystem six internships to work at their corporate headquarters next year. Partnering mm, wow. with the 100 Thieves, which is one of the top esports orgs in the world. And that's where really Ryan sees community heading, not only recruiting more black students and funding esports teams, 
but also creating new academic programs at schools with community. He sees a path forward to tie it all together by partnering with the lesser-known arm of Twitch, Twitch Student. So Twitch Student is more centric around curriculum development and in-classroom development for students. Um, so we actually have adjunct professors on our team that are actively teaching accredited esports courses at HBCUs throughout North America. And so that's like on the Twitch student side. I mean, Twitch actually just committed us, and I won't fully go into detail, but we actually just secured some very well-paying internships from Twitch that are focused only for HBCU students that are in the engineering space. So there'll be more publicly coming out about that as well. Um, But on the other side of the coin is media, right? So everyone knows that in order to have success on Twitch, you either need to have major influencers, a massive Twitch page, or you buy media, spend on their platform to then reach the audience. Mm. So really what it means for us as a nonprofit with the new league is that from a media standpoint, Twitch is supporting us. So each of our broadcasts will be carousel front page. So as soon as you go to the website, you'll see our product. And that's really what the support looks like. And they're also leveraging their massive network of brands to then bring in our foundational sponsors for the league as well. One question I want to talk about, so we're talking about HBCUs and uh, black and brown uh, students, specifically black students. As far as a founder, you know, you hear the stats about the challenges that black founders face in, in this space. Have you faced any challenges of systemic racism dealing, especially in esports, since, as you said, you're like usually the only one in a room. Have you dealt with some of those systemic issues as far as being a entrepreneur, a founder, and especially somebody in a space that's even like, very least not as diverse as most other sectors. Yeah, I would say we haven't run into it as much. And that's just because I think the state of the country, right? We haven't been around the people, you know, like in those political environments. So if there is systemic racism, it's happening without my knowledge, right? Because Mm. we're just living within our own world. But what I will say is that there's still a lot of naysayers, you know, and we have a lot of really, really, really good relationships with people in this industry. So I, I don't think, and I think sometimes people take that for granted because it's very rare when someone talks about either me directly, our team, or our organization that we don't find yeah. out about. So to answer your question though, directly and honestly, I've never really experienced it in this role, but like doing outside sales when I first moved to Georgia, I'll just say this, like there's literally a time I knocked on a guy's door, real small CPA office, he literally turned around from his chair and looked at me and said, what are you doing in here? I said, my name is Ryan, yada, yada, yada. He said, you don't belong in here. And I said, oh, well, security, like, let me up. You know, I was just introducing myself. He's like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Like, people that look like you don't belong in buildings that look like this. Whoa. And I was just like, it's like, literally, it caught me so off guard because I wasn't prepared for something. And that was... One of the first times in my life I actually pledged, I was like, if this is how this guy feels, my only goal is really to be so successful and have such a big office space and even a nicer building than your little company does. And like, those are like driving forces for me. Finally, like, what's next for community? And then uh, the final question after that, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to get in esports, who want to get in this space, what kind of advice would you give them? Next for us is just sustaining and keep onboarding schools. So that's like my primary focus. And then also rolling out our, our K through 12 career program with the 100 Thieves, as I described, all that's happening in the month of November. Um, so what I would give to like another HBCU student is, or just even a younger self or whoever is, no time is right. 
just start. You don't know what you don't know. And even when you think you know, you never do know. Um, my advice is very bland. and I think it's very straightforward. And that's just kind of like how I've learned. Just do it. Give it your best shot. I think the reason that we learned so much and grew so fast is because we openly admit that we know nothing, but we're willing to learn and always study and, and like and take in new information. So just always give it your go. And like one of my favorite quotes is like, just be quick, but don't be in a hurry. Ryan Johnson, founder of Community. I think what he's doing is interesting because it shows how important representation is in every sector, even something like esports and gaming, which we learn it is so much more than playing games. It's an industry, a billion dollar industry worth more than a movie and music industries combined, full of opportunities and jobs. Thankfully, organizations like Ryan's company and Twitch are seeing a value here. We need more of this in our tech and innovative spaces. Thanks for listening to episode five of Diverse Disruptors. If you've been enjoying the podcast so far, let us know. Rate and review the podcast if you could. Takes just a few moments. Follow us if you're not already. And most of all, tell a friend. If you know someone who would be interested and inspired by these conversations, take a second to send them a link to our show. We've got so much more coming out in season two and beyond. And I want to take you along as we build this community of listeners. Coming up next time on Diverse Disruptors, we wrap up season one with an excellent conversation with Kelly Burton and Aaron Horn McKinney of the Black Innovation Alliance. This is a perfect place to finish season one because it basically encapsulates why these conversations are so important. I'm Tariq Moody, and this is Diverse Disruptors from 88.9 Radio Milwaukee. Diverse Disruptors is presented by Northwestern Mutual and United Way's Tequity with support from Carthage College. Diverse Disruptors is hosted by Tariq Moody, executive produced by myself, Nate Immig, with production support from Kenny Perez. Marketing by Sarah Lahr and Aaron Bagata, with community outreach by Maddie Reardon. Our development director is Maggie Corey. Dory Zori is 88.9's program director. Jordan Lee is our station director. And Kevin Sucker is 88.9's executive director. Biggest thanks to our members for making this and all content on 88.9 possible. You can find out more about membership at radiomilwaukee.org slash support. Diverse Disruptors is an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.